Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining today's conference call. I'm Jim Doyle with Business Forward, and I'll be moderating our conversation today. Currently, all lines are in listen-only mode. Today, we'll discuss federal spending and tax reform. Uh, earlier this month, Congress agreed to increase the federal debt limit to support federal spending through the middle of December. Meanwhile, the Republican leadership is expected to release their blueprint for reforming our tax code sometime next week, with promises to pay tax, uh, pass tax reform uh, as soon as December. Join us to discuss what to expect from Congress and the White House and how their actions can affect our economy is Maya McGinnis. She is the president of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget and one of the country's most respected experts on the budget and fiscal responsibility. This is an interactive phone briefing, so after Maya's remarks, we'll open it up to you for questions and recommendations. Uh, for those of you who are new to our programming, Business Forward organizes local roundtables, Washington fly-ins, conference calls, webinars, and media trainings for more than 100,000 business leaders across America. At these briefings, entrepreneurs, investors, small business owners, and executives get the chance to brief policymakers on issues affecting their businesses. Today, more than 600 senior administration officials, members of Congress, governors, and mayors have participated in our programming, and this is all thanks to the support of more than 60 of America's largest and most respected companies. Before we get started, I need to cover a few housekeeping items. First, this call is on the record, and there may be press on the line. This also means we will release a recording of this call. Uh, we'll send a link to the podcast in the follow-up email you receive after today, today's uh, uh, call. Um, and if you uh, are interested in sharing that with uh, your colleagues, please do so. Also, um, there will be time for you to ask questions and share your advice. You can do this in one of two ways. You can press 1 on your dial pad at any time to ask your question live, or you can email us the question at info at businessfwd.org. That's info at businessfwd.org. When we call on you to ask a live question, please introduce yourself with your business and where you're calling from, and please include that same information if you email us your question. Again, you can press 1 on your dial pad to ask your question live or send your question via email to info at businessfwd.org, and we'll add it to the queue. Uh, let's get started. Uh, please welcome Maya McGinnis, President of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Maya. Okay, thanks so much. Um, hi, everybody on the phone, and glad to have the chance to do this call. Just by way of explanation about the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, this is a nonpartisan organization that's been around for decades, uh, works with Washington policymakers and the public to try to educate folks about the importance of fiscal issues and fiscal responsibility. Um, and our board of directors, really interesting group of people, most of whom have been in government either as the head of Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, Budget Committees, OMB, CBO, but it's the real practitioners. Um, and again, it's, it's quite bipartisan. Our co-chairs are Leon Panetta and Tim Penny and Mitch Daniels. So we focus on the big picture fiscal issues and the ramifications of a lot of the policies going on in Washington and try to do public education. Let me just start by setting the stage where we are on uh, fiscal policy, deficits and debt, and it is without question um, a bad starting place, a bad place to be. Right now, the national debt, um, and everybody's heard this $20 trillion number, we just hit $20 trillion, that's the total debt. We tend to think about a different debt number, which is the debt held by the public or the amount of debt that we've had to borrow publicly on open markets because that affects the macro economy. Um, the, the amount of debt we have as a share of the economy is the highest it has been at any time in this country's history other than we were coming out of World War II. 
And that in itself is really stunning because it's not the result of a world war. It is the result of, in many ways, the economic crisis we went through in 2008 on top of a whole lot of policy decisions to do things and just plain not pay for them. So we're at a starting point of a really um, potentially dangerous debt situation, but more troubling than where we are today is the trajectory on which, on we, that we currently are on, where the debt is supposed to grow if we do nothing by another $10 trillion over the next 10 years. So the current level being 77% of GDP. And just as an aside, that is twice our national average and that is twice where we were when we went into the economic downturn. So 77% of GDP today projected to go up to about 91% of GDP in a decade. And again, that's if we do nothing. Um, I guess a, a, a natural question for some people who aren't as uh, obsessed by the, the concerns that come from deficits and debt as I am would be, why should we care? And one of the big challenges we have is a lot of people do say that. Why would I care about this huge national debt? How does it actually affect folks? Um, and the answer is in a whole lot of ways. First, whether you're super conservative, super progressive, somewhere in between like I am, um, one thing that you don't want to be spending all your money on is government interest. And the single fastest growing part of our budget is interest payments on the debt. Another reason it really matters is I think of fiscal issues or fiscal responsibility as almost playing defense for all the things that can come along, emergencies and economic downturns. When we went into the downturn of 2008, our balance sheet was really in good shape. Again, it was about 38% of GDP, the national debt. That gave us two tools to fight the recession monetary policy and fiscal policy. Now with the debt so much higher, if and when we go into the next recession, and it's more likely that we're closer to the next recession than the last one, given the normal length of business cycles, we have really used up so many of the tools, it could be more difficult to employ fiscal policy. And that holds, tr that holds true not just for economic downturns, but obviously the world is a scary place these days. Uh, there's a whole lot of unknown threats that could come along at any time, and there are national emergencies, as we have seen with the terrible national disasters that have gone on, where, no question, we're going, it's going to cost a tremendous amount of money to do cleanup and, and deal with the national emergencies that have occurred. And the problem is, when you don't have a balance sheet that's able to accommodate emergencies, as we don't, you then get stuck in a tighter fiscal squeeze at those moments. Uh, we should not have to worry about how to offset the cost of emergencies, but we're going to have to. We're going to have to pay for the emergencies, and we're going to have to figure out how we make up for those costs. And I guess finally, I just think this big debt situation really is reflective of the broken governance system that we're seeing here in Washington, where it's so hard to get anything done. And usually it turns out the only way that we can get something done is by deciding we're not going to pay for it. Uh, and that, for anybody who's concerned about the long-term economic health of the country, is a terrible place to land on every policy. So let me turn now to go over what's going on in Washington. The big issues right now um, are obviously health care, which I think the fate of health care will be determined in the next couple weeks, though, frankly, every time anybody said that, it's turned out that uh, that keeps coming back. But that can certainly... Um, have quite profound effects on the economy and families. Um, and then tax reform, which I think is, is going to be something that's certainly going to be consuming our time for the coming months. Um, on tax reform, what has happened recently is that the budget 
which sets the parameters for tax reform. Because they're going to use reconciliation instructions, and that means the expedited process to get something through the Senate, they have to decide what the target for tax reform is ahead of time. As most of you have seen, yesterday the Senate, it looks like, came up with a deal where they are going to allow $1.5 trillion of revenue loss from tax reform. This is tremendously at odds where the starting position was um, the Republican leadership in the White House wanted to have revenue-neutral tax reform and then have a lot of the economic growth that will come from well-structured tax reform go to bringing down the debt. But instead, they're going to have $1.5 trillion of revenue loss. Uh, that will add to the debt. debt. It means that we will basically have our debt as large as the entire economy probably just, just beyond a decade from now if that were to happen. The House is not agreed to this yet. They have been interested in revenue-neutral tax reform. Um, but if I were betting on this, I would say that given the choice between offsetting the cost of tax reform or borrowing $1.5 trillion, there may be a valiant effort to offset those costs, but it's difficult to do, which I can talk about. Um, and I bet we do end up borrowing uh, at a time when we can ill afford to borrow more. So the point I'd want to make about tax reform is that we desperately need it. This tax code, I don't have to explain to anybody on this call, makes no sense. It, it has a tax structure from a different era. Um, it is anti-competitive, anti-growth, obviously complex, nonsensical in many ways. Tax reform would be one of our major priorities. But one of the major reasons to do it is to grow the economy. And tax reform that adds to the debt is less pro-growth because the negative economic effects of additional debt can outweigh the positive effects of the tax reform. So it's much less pro-growth or potentially negative as compared to revenue-neutral tax reform, which is, can be very effective in growing the economy. And I want to emphasize the importance of economic growth because right now we are projected to be growing for, at about 1.8% growth in GDP for the next decade. And that is tremendously below our national average. And it's not because the people doing the projections are pessimistic. It's because we face an incredible headwind in that our population is aging, the demographics are working against us, and as the baby boomers move into retirement, the labor component of GDP is not going to grow as it has in the past decades. And that means we need to come up with policy solutions that can do everything possible to grow the economy. It also means we have to be realistic about what kind of growth they can generate. And I've heard people saying, you know, tax reform can grow GDP growth by a whole percentage point. There's just not a credible model in the universe that would come up with that. It can help grow the economy by a couple tenths of a percent of GDP, and we should take that and call a huge win, call it a huge win. And we also need to look at other policies that will grow the economy, anything from regulatory reform, immigration reform, public investments, um, I would emphasize a big debt deal would grow the economy, ways to help uh, our aging population age more productively. We have to do all of those things, and then we still have to hope. Uh, and all of those things, hopefully we get a GDP growth of up to 3%. And I know that there are a lot of big, big numbers about there about what we're shooting for, but I think it makes no sense to um, deny math when we're making those projections, but instead focus on the policies that can grow the economy. So I would, again, emphasize tax reform that's paid for, more pro-growth than tax reform that isn't. Um, and then just coming up for the rest of the fall, and that will probably consume most of the fall, honestly, but um, we will have to deal with the debt ceiling again at some point. The can was kicked until the end of the year. 
That also means there'll probably be extraordinary measures and we'll probably be dealing with the debt ceiling sometime in the spring. There's been talk of eliminating it. Um, it's actually the only, it's the only uh, kind of curb we have on borrowing right now where at least lawmakers have to stop and think about whether they want to add more to the debt. So there must, there probably is a really thoughtful way to reform the debt ceiling so it no longer is this huge approach that weaponizes the economy potentially and that talk of default, which is so damaging, uh, could be credible. So I think we need to make some changes to it, but I think we need to think about smart things to replace it with so we still have some kind of mechanism that counteracts the political inclination to take the easy way out and borrow. Um, and there's not a lot of bipartisanship in Washington these days, but if there's any, it's kind of on going to the lowest common denominator when things are hard and saying, hey, I've got a deal for you. Uh, let me give you something I want to do and not pay for it, and in return, you can have something you want to do and not pay for it, and then we just continue to add to that tab. So again, I'll end on the point that this debt situation, tax reform going in a way that would balloon the debt further, um, these are incredibly concerning from an economic perspective, but I would broaden that to also say it really is a, a symptom of our political dysfunction, and that as much energy as we put into thinking about how we're going to fix the economy and our budgetary and fiscal situation, it's spreading into thinking about how we can get Washington to work in a way that they're actually willing not just to do deals that adds to the debt, which is counterproductive, but actually focus on the long-term focus on sustainability, and be able to make um, sometimes tough and certainly always things that acknowledge budget constraints, but decisions that actually put the economy first in front of kind of the short-term political incentives that exist. So I will end there, and we can open it up for discussion if that works. Thank you very much, Maya. Um, first question um, we have is um, a specific one on tax reform, it's from Ronald Pierre in, uh, from Arizona. Um, how should our tax code treat pass-through companies and what impact does this have on the, the deficit? Could this have on the deficit? So um, pass-throughs is a big issue here because it's incredibly, incredibly expensive, the cost of lowering the rates for pass-throughs as well. Um, the rumor I hear is that the rates will be lowered and the differential between the corporate rate and the pass-through rate will probably hover around where it is today, but so that rates will go down for both, but they won't be equalized. Um, there is a lot, there's increasing, it's not an issue that's well understood in the policy circles, and there's increasing discussion about where double taxation lies and where it doesn't, because it's not as clear cut as it used to be, given all of the tax-free saving vehicles and different things that exist. Um, and there also, I will say, is more hostility growing to the notion that so many pass-throughs aren't the poster child for pass-through, sort of the small business that folks want to help, but more of the, some of the, the highest earning organizations that are set up as pass-throughs. And so my guess is there will continue to be an effort for cost savings there by limiting what some of the pass-through um, benefits are, who, can, who, who gets those benefits. Um, so I would say that is probably one of the biggest question marks of tax reform right now as people are trying to understand because there's such a big pass, pa price tag identified with uh, equalizing corporate and pass-through rates that trying to better understand 
who is benefiting how much and so what a really fair policy is. And of course, there's a massive challenge of avoiding gaming so that people can't switch from one or the other in a way that isn't fair, that isn't justified. But I hope that answers your question. It probably has more question marks than it does answers. Uh, I think uh, given the state of play in tax reform, that's about as clear as we're going to get. Uh, yes, next question that's how they're mainly going to end. Uh, the next question is from Ken Palmer from Newark, New Jersey. Uh, could you explain what the savings would be for immediate expensing, and are there any projections for capital investment that it would create? Um, uh, this is uh, potentially a, one of the most growth-oriented tax reform proposals. Yeah, I think the chance of there being um, immediate expensing or some form of it included in the tax bill is very high. There was a hearing this week that looked at, and a number of business leaders who came out, of course it depends which business leader you're talking to, what the priority is. But there's a big focus on what the single most pro-growth thing we could do is. Is it cut rates or immediate expensing? Uh, and obviously experts and uh, business leaders are divided on that. I think, and I would be willing to say I'm pretty confident, that both will be included in the final tax bill. Uh, our next question is live. It's from uh, Hugh Campbell. Uh, Hugh, you're live. Yes. Uh, I'm a certified public accountant in the New York metropolitan area. Uh, in 2012, the Congressional Research Service, a nonpartisan arm of the Library of Commerce came out with the uh, results of a study that there was absolutely no correlation between cutting tax rates and economic growth. Um, and I guess most of our previous tax cuts ended up cutting tax rates. Now around the same time there was an announcement for uh, tax reform in the United States, China announced tax reform, and their tax reform was targeted. Uh, what's your attitude towards across-the-board tax cuts and targeted tax cuts? Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about what kind of targeted tax cuts you mean? Because there's a lot of different kinds. Well, for, for, for example, um, there's, there's various industries in the United States that have a greater job multiplier than others. Like, for example, does Walmart really need a tax cut? or which may not have as high of a tax multiplier as some manufacturing areas or some um, technology areas or some innovative areas. So if the tax cuts were, were, were targeted instead of across the board. Okay. Um, so I haven't seen the CRS report from 2012. It's hard for me to imagine that there is conclusive evidence that all rate cuts do not affect growth. I think there is certainly plenty of evidence that corporate rate tax cuts would, uh, especially since it depends so much on what other countries are doing. I know there's less evidence about the individual effects, but there's plenty of disagreement. So I feel like in that area there's no one decisive conclusion, but I think the propensity of the literature is that rate cuts do promote growth. Everything else equal. And one of those everything else is, is still the debt because the debt undermines the growth if you've grown it uh, along with the rate cuts. To your second point, it's a really interesting question because I guess it's almost a, a reflection of what kind of economy you are. To what extent is a country open to more central planning like you have in China 
where you certainly can have more growth-oriented policies by kind of dictates from above versus more of an economy where you want to have a more of a level playing field and let companies and industries pop up more um, in a response to their comparative advantages than the central planning. So I think it's almost a political economy question. Um, and I don't have a strong view. I, I think that's not the culture of our country for to have the government say, I want to focus on a bunch of these industries, though we certainly do to some extent for, through a bunch of our tax expenditures. Um, and that's a constant tension, whether we should have more or fewer of those. I, what I would like I don't think growth is the only thing that matters because I think distributional issues matter a whole lot. But I would like to have a better sense of consensus estimates for how much growth different tax reforms can produce. And as I said before, I think there's pretty strong belief that corporate tax rate cuts and expensing are two of the most growth-effective things that we can do. But there's also questions about needing labor markets. Uh, so EITC can actually be incredibly pro-growth if it's creating expansion in the labor markets. I don't find there's enough evidence to have a really clear-cut, kind of dispassionate take on that as a starting point. So that's, that's where I come. It's sort of a, um, we need to have a better sense of what will grow the economy and then figure out, in terms of other things such as distributional issues, where we want to land. Well, Maya, it's, it's not surprising, but uh, the, the majority of the questions we're getting, or the vast majority of the questions, are more on tax reform and less on the TED. I guess I guess that's um, uh, part of uh, part of the challenge for your organization. But uh, we have another one on tax reform. Can you explain more about the preference of debt over equity, and if we get this right, who benefits, companies or investors? And that's from Sherry Hayes in Long Beach, California. Well, I do think there's a lot of interest in pairing expensing with getting rid of interest deductibility so that there is no longer the preference for borrowing. Um, and it will shift. So it's, I don't know how you – I don't know how one can determine where the incidence of the cost of those lie right now. So I'm not sure how much shareholders – was the question shareholders versus companies will benefit? Okay, well, I didn't, I didn't quite understand whether the question was how much shareholders versus companies. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, sorry about that. So it's, uh, I think when they're talking about companies or, or investors, I think what they also could also just mean is consumers as well, just taxpayers. Well, but, that's um, what I was, yeah, so that's the point I was going to make, which is there's so much disagreement right now on the incidence of how much is borne by companies or the, the shareholders versus the workers versus the consumers. Those are the three areas where corporate tax is passed along, and there's remarkable division about who bears the burden. Um, and so it's it would be impossible for me to say for sure uh, where the, those changes, who would benefit and who would get hurt by it. But I definitely think we subsidize borrowing way too much throughout our economy, and moving in the direction of less subsidies of borrowing would be good in terms of just general constraints. Thanks, Maya. Um, next question is, um, as you know, much of the drive behind lowering the corporate tax rate has been the fact that all of our trading partners have been lowering theirs so that the OECD average is now under 25%. Since America's tax rate is 35%, federal and 39%, including state and local, our tax code is widely considered non-competitive. Did the countries that have been lowering the rates Canada, England, Ireland, and others 
pay for their cuts? Uh, and that question is from Elaine Sulia, um, and it, she is uh, either asking on behalf of or quoting Elaine K. Mark from the Rate Coalition. Okay. Um, so yes, I, I would agree with for sure the situation that we are not as competitive as the countries that we are trading with because of our higher corporate tax rate. I also think it's always really important to point out that the marginal tax rate and the effective tax rate are very different. And so despite our high rates, we are not collecting high amounts of revenue, and in fact, we're one of the lowest tax countries in the OECD, uh, very, very close to the bottom of that list. So I think that that is what lays out the goal of tax reform, which is to bring down the marginal rates, but not bring down the effective rates or not bring down the overall tax burden. Not to tax less, but to tax smarter. Um, and most of those countries where they have the lower corporate tax rates, they also have VATs. So one of the things that we have kind of ignored is that there are a lot of countries who have other revenue streams that we don't have in this country. Um, and I, I imagine that the fiscal squeeze that we are going to be, that we're already in, but we're going to continue to be entering in, is going to lead to a lot more talk in the coming years of alternative revenue streams, either uh, a VAT or a carbon tax, I think, are the most likely contenders. But that's what other countries have had. Many of them started out with those before they lowered their corporate tax rates. Um, and one other piece to add is that many of those countries, I think all of them, uh, have also done more in controlling spending than we have done. Uh, you just mentioned the carbon tax. What's your take on the potential uh, uh, benefits and costs of, the, of that option? I'm a huge proponent of a carbon tax. I think uh, so many times things are oversold as being win-win, uh, but I think a carbon tax really can be in that it could have positive effects both for energy slash environment and the fiscal situation, and it would allow us to tax a lot smarter. Going back to that very kind of simple lesson my, my earliest econ teachers drilled into my head, but tax more of what you want less of. So I think a carbon for a corporate tax swap, for instance, could be very smart. Um, and I think we're going to see one. Again, it could be a VAT, it could be a carbon tax. I think we're going to see a new revenue stream within a decade, and my guess is it would be a carbon tax in one form or another. Um, but anybody's guess is as good as mine. But I, I do think there's enough um, good reasoning behind a carbon tax that it makes it quite likely it's something we'll turn to in the coming years. I don't think it will be a part of this round of tax reform, almost certainly. Uh, next question is from Leona Gonzalez from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, we've seen the reemergence of an effort to reform health care with the Graham-Cassidy proposal. How would this bill affect, affect tax reform? Well, economically, I don't think it would have that big an effect. So the, I think the question really um, is more of a political issue in that there is a huge amount of pressure on the Republicans who have the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and were unable with the first attempts to, to repeal and replace Obamacare to have a win. And so if they are able to pass the Graham-Cassidy bill, and we still don't have any information on it. The, the Congressional Budget Office hasn't come out with a score, so it's very hard. We're flying blind a bit on what that would actually mean, both for coverage and cost. But if they were to pass that and were to pass the Senate and the House and actually become enacted, suddenly the massive pressure that I believe Republicans are feeling right now to have some kind of a win 
would be lessened. And that means tax reform could go more slowly, could be done more thoughtfully. What worries me is that we're going to try to ram through tax reform if there is no health care reform bill because Republicans are going to be very concerned about being able to go back to their voters and say they passed something that they have campaigned on and run on. Um, I don't even like engaging in that discussion because it makes me sad for our country that we spend so much time talking about the political pressures and the political wins um, as opposed to what policies we need to be looking at. So, I mean, I would just add that in the entire health care debate that we've had for the past months, the thing that from our perspective we really worry about cost control of overall health care, and that's not just how much we pay in premiums or co-pays in any year, it's the trajectory of health care costs, which are growing faster than the economy, and much like interest payments, squeezing out so many other things. That's received very little attention. Um, and so I guess my answer to that question also makes me want to throw in, I just can't help, and, I, and I'm a, a big political independent, I can't help worrying that the structure we have of Republicans and Democrats fighting so much on different legislation from a political perspective and having that calculation be as huge as it is really is shortchanging our policy design. And I think we've seen this in healthcare, and I think we'll probably see this in tax reform, that the real economic effects, effects on families, on households, on businesses are not getting as much attention as they should. And the kinds of questions that are being asked on this call are not being discussed in the public square um, nearly as much as they should because they are being replaced by discussions about who's up and who's down and, and kind of the political intrigue that goes on with all of these things these days. Uh, all very good points. Uh, during the Obama administration, we did a number of calls on tax reform with the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, Jason Furman and Gene Sperling, Jeff Zients uh, at the National Economic Council, and they supported lowering uh, the corporate tax rates, but at the time the conversation in both parties was much more directed towards revenue neutral op op uh, options. So given where we are today, how much could we cut rates and still keep revenue neutral? Yeah. Yeah, I remember when they were talking a lot about corporate tax reform, one thing I was disappointed in is that it wasn't uh, able to be comprehensive tax reform because I, I like the idea of trying to be able to do individual and corporate at the same time. Uh, but I think it was really to their credit and also shows that corporate tax reform goes beyond left and right. It is about global competitiveness. One thing to their credit that they did is they came up with a list not of specific base broadeners that they were advocating, but at least it was illustrative of what you could do to broaden the base. And likewise, when they passed Obamacare, one thing that they did is they came up with, here are all the offsets, the ways we're willing to pay for Obamacare, that then gave them the space for how much coverage they could provide. So they started with the spinach first and then had the sweetener after. This is how much we're willing to come up with for pay for us. We'll do the hard work, and then we can do as much um, of the policy expansion that we can afford. And I think that was a really good model. And I wish that's how we were doing it now. We very clearly, on this tax reform discussion, started with the sweeteners. We're going to lower the corporate rate. We're going to lower the rate for pass-throughs. We're going to do this for individuals. We're going to double the deduction. So all sorts of things. And we promise not to touch X, Y, and Z. Instead of here's how much we could get from broadening the base and therefore how we could lower rates. So I do think that's how we should approach it. To your question, I think the very lowest that one can really afford to lower the corporate tax rate 
if you're keeping your base broadening to everything within the corporate rate that you can really find and maybe a little bit beyond is probably about 28%. Obviously, you can get that rate lower if you either offset it with uh, broadening the tax base on the individual side, which is where 90% of the tax breaks lie, or from a different revenue stream. Again, I love that carbon tax for a corporate tax swap or from spending reductions. So there are a lot of other places you could buy down the corporate rate, but if you're sticking on the corporate side, high 20s is probably where we can get. Uh, and I wouldn't dismiss that either. I think that could do a whole lot of good for the economy, and I would take that as a huge win. I think it's, it's been complicated uh, when people were talking about 15%, which is a rate that just was never affordable. And... Um, I mean, I, I don't like the corporate tax. I've written that I, if we could, without creating gaming, I'd get rid of it, but you can't because there's, there's just too many loopholes that provides. Um, so don't get me wrong. I think the lower the corporate tax rate, the more desirable in so many ways, but I just don't think we should dismiss the huge benefits we would get just from getting it into the 20s, even the high 20s. Thank you. Um, for our last question, we've got a number of people asking or commenting on uh, deductibility of uh, state income taxes. Uh, there seems to be strong feelings on both sides among our, our uh, the people on the call. Um, what's your take and uh, what's, what's the impact on revenue and what could it mean for growth? Okay. Well, um, normally I sort of, I'm, I'm so squishy and in the center, I usually kind of have one foot in each camp. But on this one, I think reforming or eliminating the state and local tax deduction is an excellent idea. And sorry that I've alienated many people on the call. But here's the situation. So many of our tax breaks, and there's 1.5 trillion plus of them a year. So we are talking massive amounts of money. If we're willing to go in to our tax expenditures, the deductions, credits, exclusions, exemptions, and really reform them, we can bring our rates down massively. And so many of them are highly popular, and in, in many ways, because on April 15th, when we're paying our taxes, the only thing that makes us not want to, you know, really crumple up the taxes and throw them out the window, your, your paperwork, is that you're getting these tax breaks. And so when you take your state and local deduction, when you take your home mortgage interest deduction, thank goodness you feel like somebody's giving you something back. Now, that, of course, is not true. I'm paying for your home mortgage interest deduction. You're paying for my charitable contribution. I'm paying for someone else's child credit. Like it's just a bunch of subsidies that create Swiss cheese of our tax code. But on this one in particular, what we are doing is we are asking low, low tax states to subsidize high tax states. But the reason that I don't think that's justifiable is that those states that pay higher taxes presumably are getting something in return for those taxes. More health care, more education, better roads, all the things the state is providing. And if they're not providing something for those taxes, then presumably voters would say they don't want them. So what we're doing is we're having a low-tax state subsidize all the goods a high-tax state is getting through that tax break. And, and I know that people think, well, listen, I live in New York, and this, I pay tremendous amounts of taxes. I need that tax break. That's not for somebody in um, a low-tax state to, to subsidize, in my opinion. I don't know. I wouldn't say that it's one of the more pro-growth changes. I would say it's one of the more equitable changes. Um, and there's a long list of them. I could spend I could spend hours going on about how so many of the tax breaks are really the shadow budget to have so much money that doesn't have 
any oversight, really. We do so little to evaluate the effectiveness. Like, I'm not sure what the objective of that tax break is. Just like we subsidize, you know, vacation homes, it's hard to imagine if somebody had gone onto the floor of the Senate and said what we really need is a voucher for vacation homes in this country, but we subsidize things which it's not clear why we are. Um, and then so often the effects are really quite regressive. Um, this is one of them that is. And so I think a huge scouring of the tax base and figuring out what really makes sense and is achieving its goals would be uh, tremendously useful in freeing up resources that could be used either for rate reductions or deficit reduction. Um, I gather from the call that I, I haven't done a good enough job of convincing everybody that <laughs> dealing with our fiscal challenges is as important as dealing with tax, tax reform. But it really is. It's a long-run issue that's basically the underpinnings of a healthy economy. And it's kind of like other things that, that your general health, if we don't tend to this, nothing else is going to ultimately matter because our economy is not going to be able to grow if it's just completely burdened by debt. So I'll leave that message to everybody on top of as we all watch how tax reform unfolds and have various opinions. Um, I do believe the fiscal component of this, though, less, less in our faces, is critically important. Thank you very much, Myra. We really appreciate it. Um, that's all we have time for today. Before we go, just a few quick announcements. Uh, on Monday, we'll be having a conference call with Greg Sherrill, Executive Chairman of Teneco and immediate past chair of the National Association of Manufacturers. Greg will be talking about a carbon tax as a way to uh, reduce climate change and also pay for a corporate tax cut. So we'll be continuing this conversation. The call is taking place on Monday, September 25th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Uh, also, please check your email for a recording of today's call and a quick survey. We're always trying to improve the quality of our programming, and we really appreciate any feedback you have time to provide. Again, thank you all for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us for today, and a special thanks to Maya McGinnis for uh, all of her uh, help. Uh, we look forward to working with you all soon. Mm -hmm.